Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It is Thursday, June 22nd, 2017. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. We had a big election this week. The Georgia special election that we've been talking about for months finally happened on Tuesday, and Republican Karen Handel won by a wider-than-expected margin, actually. She won by four points over Democrat John Ossoff, dealing a uh, blow to Democrats who hoped to deal blow themselves to President Donald Trump in the first few months of his term. As it is, Republicans kept this seat in the northern Atlanta suburbs. We're going to talk about what it means, how it does and does not affect the House landscape, looking all the way forward to the 2018 elections, and how it affects the political mood in Washington, too. We're also going to talk about one of the knock-on effects of this loss. Some Democrats in the House are newly upset with House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, who was used by Republicans as a cudgel against Ossoff in that Georgia special election. And once again, for the first time in about six months, she's facing calls to step down. We'll talk a little bit about how realistic that is and what the latest news is there. And then we have a special guest on today's Nerdcast, Dan Diamond, the host of another Politico podcast, Politico Pulse Check podcast, is going to be here to talk with us about the new Senate Republican health care bill, which dropped on Thursday. We're going to go through what's in it, what the schedule is for moving it through the Senate, and then reconciling differences with the House and how this is also going to affect the political landscape moving forward. So, packed show today. A few quick housekeeping items before we dive in. Remember, if you have questions, please email us at nerdcast at politico.com. And if you enjoy the show, remember you can subscribe, rate us, and write a written review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. All right, without further ado, let's welcome in the Nerdcast panel this week. We have senior politics editor Charlie Mtessian. Hey, Scott. National political reporter Eliana Johnson. Hello. And senior reporter Nancy Cook. Hey, thanks for having me. All right. Our first data point this week, 51.9%. That was the share of the vote won by Republican Congresswoman-elect Karen Handel in Georgia's 6th District on Tuesday night when she defeated John Ossoff, the Democrat, in one of the most closely watched House races ever, also the most expensive House race ever. Also, probably the longest special election ever. It's been going on for six months, and now it's over. Eliana, start us off. The White House is watching this race very closely. How are they and the rest of the GOP reacting to the win? (laughs) Well, I don't know how closely the White House is watching this race. They were watching it closely on election night. Uh, Trump, you know, he had some celebratory tweets. I'm sure had had Handel lost, he would have said she... Uh, she choked like a dog, um, <laughs> oh, and he would have had some nasty things to say about her. But anyways, um, I don't think the, the White House was tracking the race all too closely, or at least the president and his senior aides. Uh, but they were happy to celebrate when she won. Um, I, I've sort of been pouring cold water on the idea that this race means anything for 2018. Certainly it's good on the whole for Republicans that they, lo- that they, that they won, excuse me, four special elections. 
And it is uh, putting a damper on the idea that an uh, anti-Trump fervor is enough to get Democrats over the finish line, I think, um, and retake the House in 2018. I think that they will tweak their message. You're starting to hear Democrats say that um, they're getting too consumed by these Russia investigations, which don't really seem to be resonating with the voters. Uh, on the other hand, it doesn't really seem like Republicans have a positive message. I think that they need to get something done. Uh, the health care bill could help. Uh, tax reform would be tremendously helpful um, in order to essentially beat history. I think it's it's good to remember that Republicans have um, an enormous task ahead of them. The average number of seats lost is between 30 and 40 for the incumbent party in a midterm election. And special elections are special. Uh, there were there was uh, about $50 million spent in this Georgia race. And though this was a, a, a Republican district and Democrats did overperform, um, you know, Republicans are saying that they still have uh, an enormous task ahead of them. Many of them pointed me to the 2009 upstate New York special election where Republicans uh, lost that year. Their candidate, the establishment back candidate actually dropped out in 2009 after uh, just a year after President Obama won. Republicans were hugely depressed and it masked the catastrophe for Democrats that was coming in 2010 when they lost over 60 seats in the House. So these special elections can send the wrong message. And I do think there is a tremendously challenging landscape ahead for Republicans, regardless of these victories. Now, Charlie, you had a, a similar take on this, right? The you know, Republicans are celebrating this victory, and rightly rightly so. They kept a seat. You know, Ultimately, it's wins and losses, and they kept their majority at 24 seats in the House. But you also saw signs of a uh, coming kind of broad suburban problem for the Republican Party in in this race and in the 2016 presidential race. Yeah, although one place where I would break with uh, Eliana is the idea that the, Trump, that the White House didn't care. Uh, I mean, I think that they cared a lot. And I, I mean, Trump went down there, they sent Pence down there. He did robocalls. Bannon was paying attention, at least in the first primary part. Uh, Trump, you know, launched through his favorite medium at least four or five tweets on election night. Like, I think they, they understood uh, the implications of a loss like this, just the psychic value of, of losing it. And they knew that they they would be portrayed as losers in a referendum uh, on the president. Uh, but what what I see in, in those results is that, you know, number one, uh, the Democrats are going to need a bigger boat. And what I mean there is that they need a message. And what they learned or should have learned is that being the Running against Donald Trump is not going to be enough. It has to be running against Donald Trump and something more because it looked to me like there was kind of an anti-anti-Trump backlash in that district, meaning Republicans may not love Donald Trump in that district. And the polls suggest that uh, he didn't do that well there in November, even though it's a Republican district. But they don't find the uh, alternative all that tasteful either or looked at another way. They find Nancy Pelosi far more appalling than Donald Trump. Uh, and I think uh, you saw that in the way the Republicans ran that race there. But the bigger problem that Republicans have in the suburbs, and this is this is a Trump problem, but this is actually a, a much deeper problem than, than Trump, is that they're losing suburbs like Cobb County, one of the key counties in that district. They're losing these suburban giants that have carried the party, that the party has been rooted in in, in the entire post-war era. I mean, these were the places that... Uh, provided the counterweight to the big Democratic votes coming out of the big cities. And as soon as these suburbs go, there's no longer a path to win these states. And so uh, imagine what Georgia is going to look like if 
Uh, you're getting big Democratic margins out of Atlanta, and then all of a sudden, places like Cobb County and Gwinnett County and other big places are starting to lean towards the Democrats. It's going to then look like New York, where it used to be competitive until the, the uh, Republican suburbs went Democratic, or uh, Maryland, which also used to be competitive until Baltimore County went Democratic. And so we're beginning to see a lot more of that as these uh, large, older urban suburbs uh, begin to ally themselves with the big cities and uh, and cut off the Republican path to victory. And Go I ahead, just Nancy. think from a policy perspective, too, I mean, I think what Eliana said is is dead on is that Republicans need to come up with, you know, they did win the special election. Um, I think that that was a big relief to the people that I talked to, at least. But, um, you know, they do need to come up with a more positive policy message. And Eliana's right, tax reform would be huge. But the same goes for Democrats. I mean, I think Democrats were stunned that, uh, you know, that Trump was sort of better than what they were presenting. But the thing is, is that ever since the 2016 election and Hillary Clinton's platform, you know, the whole idea of not really having a coherent economic message and talking about jobs and talking to working class people has really stumped Democrats. And I feel like post-election, they haven't solved those issues or come up with sort of a coherent strategy to talk about how to address a lot of Americans' uh, economic anxiety. And I think that this race sort of showed them that that's a message that they have to get down before uh, 2018. Well, it's interesting. You know, I wonder if just a few thousand votes the other way and people might be talking about Ossoff a little differently. All of his ads were about, all of his public messaging was about both parties in Washington wasting too much money, that they needed to get that under control and use it to you know, get off the back of local businesses and help fuel local business development. I think that the Democrats who were involved with the race thought that that was a, a good message for uh, a kind of Republican-leaning, affluent suburban district. But it, it it wasn't enough, at least, I think. But that's really like a Bill Clinton policy kind of prescription. You know, that's a very, you know, center-left, we're going to deal with the deficit, we're going to cut regulations. But it doesn't necessarily get at what I think voters really care about, which is how am I doing financially and how is my pocketbook doing? And the idea of cutting regulation for small businesses is appealing, but it's more abstract. And that's why I think if the Republicans could pull off something like tax reform or even tax cuts, that would give them a huge advantage going into 2018. Scott, I think what you said is important. Ossoff felt the need to run uh, away from the National Democratic Party. He ran as a fiscal hawk and he did not want to be associated at all with National Democratic Party leaders. I think the Republicans, particularly the outside groups, uh, very successfully tied him to Nancy Pelosi, and that was hugely damaging. Karen Handel tried to split the baby. She did fundraisers with Donald Trump and with Mike Pence. Uh, towards she, she ran towards Trump in the primary to secure the base, which was smart, but she didn't want to be seen in public with them towards the end, which I think shows that she did view Trump as a liability. That neither party is hugely popular right now. But and at the end, she wouldn't say Trump's name. She said the president, which drew some whoops and cheers uh, a- after she won. And a special thanks to the president of the United States of America. But let's not forget our equally great vice president, Mike Pence. But 
Uh, neither party is hugely popular. I just think it happens to be that national Democratic leadership is viewed right now as more unpopular than national Republican leadership. It doesn't help, I don't think. And many people have pointed this out right now. I always get criticized for being an ageist when I say this. But the Democratic House leadership, it's like a bunch of people with one foot in the grave who have been around uh, you know, since the early 2000s. And Republicans, you know, they drove John Boehner out for being too much of a moderate. Uh, you know, Denny Hastert is no longer there. The old faces in House leadership are gone. And it they, they are younger and more fresh faced. You don't you don't see uh, anti Paul Ryan ads or people trying to tar uh, Republican candidates by linking them to Paul Ryan. You did in 2012, yeah, though. I do true. wonder. I do wonder if those might come back. I mean, in 2012, I remember in, there were a few House districts around the country. New New York's 19th district was one of them. I remember it was an Obama district represented by a Republican, Chris Gibson, where they plastered Romney and Ryan's faces in TV. Of course, it didn't work. Gibson got reelected. I would just I would just say that 10 years ago, Republicans were linking Pelosi to local Democratic candidates successfully, and they are still doing that today successfully. It doesn't seem that the lesson for Democrats has been learned. And no candidate has ever really lost or been uh, suffered that much because of uh, their connection to Paul Ryan. He's just not as polarizing as Nancy Pelosi. And I know Democrats often will say, well, his popularity is just as, as low as Nancy Pelosi's if you look at the ratings. But the, the, the fact is he's not as polarizing. He's more like Denny Hastert. You couldn't run against Denny Hastert. Uh, Pelosi is more of the Gingrich model, extremely divisive, uh, very polarizing in part because she fits the caricature that Republicans have and and many voters have of Democrats, a wealthy coastal coastal liberal. And uh, that is what what kills them. But the other thing I think that hurt Ossoff was how genuine was his message? I mean, it's, you know, if you were a a voter, a Republican voter in that district thinking about it, you didn't love Trump. You're looking at this kid. You're thinking, how believable is it that he uh, doesn't doesn't know if he's going to vote for Nancy Pelosi. Of course, he's going to vote for Nancy Pelosi as speaker when he gets to Washington. And how believable is any of the stuff he was saying when he was being funded to the tune of over $30 million from Democrats that are raging over Donald Trump? So I think the believability of his message was really hard to sell in a district like that. That's a good point. We should mention about Georgia's 6th District. Trump, Trump actually did win that district. He, he won it by two Two points, which is much less than a usual Republican nominee wanted. But Trump did win that district over Hillary Clinton in 2016. But one one other special election I want to bring up before we uh, move on to our next segment. We're going to talk a lot more about Pelosi and this this kind of theme. But there was another special election on Tuesday, South Carolina's fifth district. This other election, South Carolina five, this is not a uh, a district where uh, Trump wavered. He actually improved on Mitt Romney. I think he got something like 57% of the vote in South Carolina 5 in 2016. And yet the Republican there actually won by less than Karen Handel did, won by three points, uh, Congressman-elect Ralph Norman over Archie Parnell. Uh, just kind of one of those weird one of those weird things that happens on election night sometimes, right, Charlie? Yeah, I mean, I think he was, uh, unfortunately, he, he he was a victim of, of impressions of South Carolina, I think. I think the the idea was that, uh, at least among Democrats, the, the thinking is that South Carolina is kind of viewed as an off-the-table red state, not competitive, not worth investing in, in the same way that, say, maybe Georgia might be, because there's a widespread belief that, you know, d- uh, demographic changes in Georgia are driving that state eventually toward uh, the blue side. And I think also Democrats couldn't get excited about a guy like Parnell, because he's, you know, an older white guy who's... But, 
It has the former stain Goldman of, Sachs. Well, that's that's what I was going to say. The the taint of Goldman Sachs in his background. Uh, I don't think there was a belief that he would. I'd be like able... to have the taint of Goldman Sachs <laughs> in my <laughs> bank account. <laughs> I'd like to have a taint in my yeah. bank account. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think there was the impression that he wouldn't be able to generate the kind of African American turnout he'd need to win in a, in a district like that, and all of that. Also, Trump wasn't a big issue. You know, he Trump was not going to be a driver. Uh, in that district because he's fairly popular in, in South Carolina. But what he turned what, what I think happened there was he turned out to be a really authentic candidate. He ran good ads. Uh, he was comfortable in his own skin. And good candidates uh, always do better than you think. And he ran a, you know, a good campaign. Ultimately, it was a little too much to overcome there in that, in that district. But you know, he ran a really good campaign. And he, he also benefited from running under the radar, right? What, what would have happened if Republicans, if Republicans had aired a half dozen ads linking him to Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, that's a great point because Pelosi was an issue, I think, in, in that district back when John Spratt, the conservative Democrat, uh, used to hold that district because that was Democratic held not that long ago. Sorry, Eliana. I oh, no, I, I think it goes to show, you know, good good candidates can transcend a bad environment. And Republicans essentially have run two bad candidates who run two, who ran two bad campaigns and have run with lower margins in these districts than the Republican coloration of the districts and something that they need to look out for come 2018 when they will likely be running in a hostile environment. They're going to need to recruit better candidates. And some of the some of their incumbents who have been in Congress for a while and maybe haven't dealt with a tough reelection fight in a while might might be in for a wake up call. It'll be interesting to see whether some of those folks can turn it on uh, for for 2018 if they if they do end up getting a Democratic uh, opponent. Absolutely. That's going to be the fun part of 2018, which is uh, the older folks that haven't had a competitive election in a long time. They just you're, you know, it's just like sports. Your skills get rusty. You know, you're off your game and they will start making uh, ridiculous statements. They will fight with the press. They will yell at their constituents. They'll do embarrassing things. And it'll be a circus in a number of districts where uh, members just haven't had a competitive race in so long that they're going to lose it. This is like a, a former Democratic congressman, Bob Etheridge, who famously grabbed a video tracker in 2010 and got raked over the coals for it, ended up losing by just a couple points. Right. And, can you can you imagine some of these people that, you know, they were elected in maybe the, the 70s or the early 80s and have never had a competitive campaign in the Internet era or in the era of YouTube, and it's going to catch up to them? All right. That's as good a place as any to move on to our next segment. Let's take a quick break first to hear from one of our sponsors. Our next data point is 63, and that was the number of votes that Congressman Tim Ryan got when he challenged Nancy Pelosi for the House Democratic leadership in November. That was almost a third, a little less than a third of the Democratic caucus, and Pelosi swept that challenge aside. But now in the wake of the loss in Georgia and Republicans' deployment of her as a weapon against Ossoff, uh, Pelosi is once again facing calls from some in her caucus to step down. Charlie, is this just frustration boiling over after a big deflating defeat? Democrats really thought for a while there that they were going to win this Georgia seat. Or do you think something more is building here? Yeah, I think it's both. Uh, this was a, a very demoralizing defeat. Uh, Democrats had high hopes in Georgia. Uh, I think they came to the realization at the end, that not only did they lose the seat, but they lost all of the opportunities they had uh, in the early months of the tr- Trump era to make gains in these special elections. So you have that factor, which was uh, frustration, annoyance. Um, and then something bigger is happening here. Uh, you know, the, the party has moved beyond Nancy Pelosi, and yet she still leads it. Uh, I think that there is a new generation of members that uh, want the party to change in a way that it hasn't changed in a long time. 
Uh, there are so many loyalists in the, in the Democratic caucus that can't imagine ever uh, deserting Nancy Pelosi. They were there in 06 for the historic uh, speakership. You know, they love Nancy Pelosi. She's raised money f- for them. But now, they're, you know, she, she was first elected in the late 80s. So she's been around for a long time. Uh, she was speaker in 2006. Caesar. 2006, yeah, I'm going to the uh, Eliana um, ageist argument here. But, I mean, she's been around for a long time, and there's a whole uh, body of new members that have come in, and all they know is a Democratic Party that over the last decade has been slaughtered in midterm elections. And, you know, look at it. Look at the numbers. I mean, she was only a speaker for two terms, even though she's been leader of the party for a long time. And she has presided over a Democratic Party that has suffered massive losses uh, in uh, under her tenure. And in fact, a whole wing of the party has been uh, extinguished, the Blue Dogs, under her leadership because of races where they were killed with ads about her. So I think all of that is beginning to catch up to her. And yet, Charlie, as you mentioned, there there are certain – there are – reasons, some of them very good ones, why a lot of House Democrats still feel very warmly to her. She's a very good legislative tactician. You mentioned she raises a ton of money. I mean, the Nancy, it's it's in some sense, it's it's not as simple as the political question, right, as the ads that are run in some of these districts. Yeah, that's true. But I also think just to Charlie's point and to Eliana's point, I mean, there's also just like if you look at, you know, Senator Chris Van Hollen of Maryland, like he, you know, used to be in the House and was, you know, a really good leader, was very effective at attacking uh Paul Ryan, when he was chair of the Budget Committee, very effective at carrying the party's message. And he ended up running for an open Senate seat uh, vacated by Barbara Mikulski, I think in part because he was never going to ascend to leadership in the House. And at some point— This was just last year. Yeah, this was just last year. And at some point, you know, ambitious people, uh, you know, in the House, they kind of hit a ceiling because that structure has been there for so long. And so, you know, if you want like a deeper bench of younger Democrats, I think it's an open question about whether or not Pelosi's leadership should continue, particularly since the Democrats, you know, they just don't have a super young bench. I mean, look at the people that they're talking about for the presidential campaign. Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden might run. I think there are, you know, Joe Biden's almost 74. I mean, this is these are, you know, people who are quite advanced in their age. There are a handful of younger members, though, who who seem to be the ones agitating for this change, right, Eliana? I mean, who are some of the the House Democrats who are the loudest voices in uh, calling for Pelosi to to move aside, to make room for for a new generation? Well, let me just say briefly, I don't think Pelosi's tenure would be noteworthy except for the fact that in Congress we've seen – a trend of much younger and very ambitious legislators come in. We've had people like Ted Cruz and Tom Cotton and Paul Ryan come in. And it used to be that a senator wouldn't speak on the floor for many, many years. Um, but it does seem like those traditions are uh, have become anachronistic now. And there's a lot of young blood in the House and in, in the Senate. And the era of uh, these old traditions where um, – committee assignments and, you know, waiting your turn to speak and so on um, have gone by the wayside. And in that sense, um, you know, Pelosi and Steny Hoyer and Jim Clyburn seem, um, you know, by comparison to their Republican colleagues, um, you know, kind of past their sell-by date. And there are guys in the Democratic Party, uh, people like Tim Ryan, who ran against Pelosi um, from, you know, the industrial heart of Ohio, or like, I think we're going to see a lot of military veterans run in 2018, guys like Seth Moulton from Massachusetts. Um, And I think those are the people, when, when you hear Democrats talk about 
the ways that, that they need to grow their party. It's the type of people that Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and Bill Clinton appealed to um, that have fled the Democratic Party into the Republican Party that they uh, that they would like to get back. I think uh, Nancy Pelosi has been a, is truly a gifted leader. I think she is inspirational to many Democratic characters or to many Democratic members. She's a, a, obviously an amazing fundraiser. I think she's been able to weld together the lessons she learned as, remember, she is the daughter of a old school machine boss mayor in Baltimore. Uh, she has been able to put those lessons together with a sort of a newer age style of leadership. But having said that, we did, we did a story yesterday about Nancy Pelosi and the grumbling in the Democratic caucus. And what stuck out to me was the on the record comments. I mean, these were people who were not hiding uh, in any way. They were out in the open by name, uh, not trashing Pelosi, but saying openly that it was time for her to go. And there was a, a you know, a clear connective uh, thread b- between all the remarks. They were as there's Eliana a mansion mentioned. in Palm Beach with your name on it, Nancy. But yeah, <laughs> and, and like uh, Eliana was talking about Seth Moulton. Well, Seth Moulton, Kathleen Rice, some of the people who were mentioned by name on the record in that story, they were all in high school or college when she was first elected to, to Congress. So they don't have the connection and the loyalty to her. All they know is a party that they've seen over the last decade. Uh, really sink to the bottom in terms of uh, control of state legislatures, uh, to see a shrinking House majority and and be reduced to near irrelevance in the House. And that is what they're speaking to. And it's hard for Pelosi to make an argument against that. A lot of that is Barack Obama's fault. I don't think we should forget. True. Yeah. I mean, the hollowing out took place under you know, uh, his leadership when he didn't pay attention to, to the little things outside of Washington. Well, he, here is one of the arguments that, that Pelosi's defenders are making. Wouldn't Republicans just uh, bo- boogieify, I guess, you know, turn, turn the next leader into a boogeyman as well? Before it was Pelosi, it was uh, Ted Kennedy, who Republicans linked Democratic candidates to uh, around the country. The question is whether they'd be successful in doing it, right? Not that's whether true. they They've would already, try to do it. That's, that's, very, that's very true. Republicans have already invested a lot of time and effort and money, I, we should say, in, in painting Pelosi this way into, into weaponizing her. But also, I think Eliana's right on the mark with that because, you know, the business of demonizing politicians is, is not that simple. Democrats have been trying to demonize Paul Ryan for a long time, uh, but they haven't succeeded at, at it. You know, you need to be able to, you need caricature-able politicians. And Republicans to tried to do it to Obama, and he was he was elected and reelected. Um, they were more successful in doing so in midterm years when he was not on the ballot. Can you imagine if Chris Van Hollen was speaker? Uh, I mean, he's so boring that you would not be able to demonize him the way you can with Ouch. with. Uh, <laughs> well, no, I mean he he was my congressman, and I have to say uh, I thought very highly of him because I couldn't believe that I think it was when he was, you know, ranking member on budget or something. He actually took the time out during during uh, these very sensitive budget negotiations to meet with my kids, uh, Cub Scout troop, and and when I. Constituent services, man. Exactly. When I was thinking, and when I heard from from, uh, my son about this, I was just like, are you kidding me? Like, with all he has to do on Capitol Hill right now, with everything that I know is happening in the news, he took time to meet with you, uh, you know, these uh, paste eaters. These paste eaters, you know. know, But it it goes to show you, like, that was a guy who knows his business. Um, And and my larger point about uh, Van Hollen is that. You know, it would be very hard. He, he, what are you going to say? Uh, nobody knows what Montgomery County, Maryland is, but everyone on the right and lots of people know, uh, you know, the image of San Francisco. 
I, w- I will say Chris Van Hollen did benefit as one of the few House members who does not have to take a flight home every weekend in uh, in the oh, example absolutely. you just gave. Yeah. Um, he's able to just drive back up and, and tend to the constituents whenever he wants. Um, well, well, we'll see what happens. The stuff with Pelosi is a uh, very fast developing story at this point. She has declared her intention to stay put. She says she loves the, the fight. Um, she's going to um, stay put and fight for her place and fight for the House majority in 2018. But uh, Republicans are definitely going to use her as a weapon against uh, Democratic candidates in district after district. We're going to move on to our next segment in just a moment. But first, let's hear a message from our sponsor. All right. We have a special guest for our third and final segment this week. Please Ow. welcome Ow. <laughs> Please welcome Dan Diamond, uh, one of Politico's healthcare experts and the host of Politico's Pulse Check podcast. That that Yelp is what I normally get when I walk into a room to talk about health. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, here's the data point that uh, Dan has brought to discuss with us. Thirty five percent. That's the percentage of people who approve of the House Republican health care bill, according to a Politico morning consult poll released this week. It's much lower than recent approval ratings for Obamacare, but it's on par with what Democrats faced when they were drafting their health care bill in 2009. So, Dan the Senate Republican health care bill just dropped this morning uh, as we were settling in here at the studio. Tell us about what's in this, what people are thinking about it so far, how it's going to play, and and we'll you know talk about where it's going to go from here. The Senate bill is a lot more like the House bill than we were told to expect seven weeks ago. But, but weirdly, it also keeps a lot of Obamacare, which isn't the root and branch repeal that Republicans campaigned on for years. So kind of breaking that into pieces. Trump had talked about the House bill as being, quote, mean, mean, mean. He gave all those kind of awkward behind the scenes bashing of what the House Republicans did. But this bill still rolls back. Big elements of the Medicaid expansion makes big changes to the Medicaid program and in a more punitive way for that program than the House bill had proposed and makes other changes that will lead to millions of more people either without health coverage or potentially more expensive health plans. It does keep the House bill's tax cuts which I think is an important way to think about this politically as more of a tax vehicle than a health care policy improvement that's been very, very hard to find even among conservatives, intellectuals who will step out and say, this is improving the health care system. Where it is like Obamacare is it does keep protections that ensure if you have a preexisting condition, someone's got to sell you a plan. Now, whether that plan is actually going to be comprehensive and whether you'll be paying a lot more out of pocket that's a different story. But the pre-existing conditions promise it is in there. It also keeps the tax credits that the Affordable Care Act is built around, but it rolls them back and sets up a scenario where if you're an older American, you might be spending a lot more to buy a health plan. And that, that was one of the big talking points that Democrats had coming out of the the health bill, uh, the, the House bill, pardon me. It was the concept of what, what the AARP is calling an age tax. And so that mechanism is still that's obviously not what Republicans are going to call it, but but that mechanism is still present in the first draft of this Republican Senate plan. It, the Republicans would only call it an age tax if they want to commit a ritual suicide at the next election. <laughs> uh, 
But the H- Nancy Pelosi, you will be paying it. <laughs> Na- Na- Nancy Pelosi, who you guys just talked about that, I think. Oh yes. Um, so is, as you're long- not in on our little inside joke. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I will be after I listen to Nerdcast. Yeah, this you week. will. But if if she stays as speaker and stays in Congress, she won't have a problem. If she is cut off and has to shop on the exchanges, she might well have a problem. <laughs> so one one way that this could hit seniors is right now the Affordable Care Act offers subsidies if you make up to four hundred percent of the federal poverty line. So we'll say you know thirty five thousand dollars or forty thousand dollars that gets rolled back. So now if you make over 350% under the the Senate bill, you aren't getting any subsidies at all. And Kaiser Family Foundation has been all over this. They pointed out that the average 60-year-old who makes 351% of poverty gets about a $5,000 tax credit to buy health care. That $5,000 would go away. And in some states, it's dramatically more. In Alaska, where health coverage is much more expensive just because it's so rural, the average 60-year-old who makes a little bit more than that that threshold gets $18,000 in tax credits. That's going away. So if you're paying out of pocket as a senior, that's bad. The bill also would change various um, protections around how much more seniors can get charged than younger people, which was a big part of the ACA. The goal was get as many people covered as possible. Maybe young folks are going to pay more Old folks are going to pay less than they would if, like, the market was totally unregulated because older folks are are sicker, need more care. Right now, the Senate bill could require older Americans to front up to 16% of their income just to buy a health exchange plan. And if you do the math, the average American will say make $75,000. That's, you know, $10,000, $12,000 in premiums for your health plan. What do you think, Dan? I'm curious, you know, what do you think is going to be the the big political flashpoints? Is it going to be like older Americans could potentially pay more? Will it be the Medicaid rollbacks and some tension with Republican governors? Like what's going to potentially dog this? Kind of looking at that from two sides, Nance. So on the one hand, there is the Medicaid concern. If you're Senator Rob Portman in Ohio, more than 700,000 people have gotten covered through the Medicaid expansion. The future of that program is, is in question if the funding gets rolled back. And overall, Medicaid is also targeted for, for transformation. There is a clump of senators who are representing the concerns there. And Portman's basically been their voice in the negotiations. It would not be surprising to see them stay together and push back for either more funding or more protections. But we haven't even talked about the conservatives, Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, who don't think that this bill goes far enough. And as we're sitting down to record this, there are reports that they're going to come out Thursday afternoon and take a shot and say this this bill is not something we can support. This current draft doesn't get the job done. There are only 52 Republican senators. They need 50. They lose three. It's over. Cruz, Paul, Lee, that's three right there. On the other side, on the Medicaid side, Portman, Heller, Capito, that's three right there. So a uh, ex-Republican Senate aide gave me a, a great line, I thought. He said, there needs to be, for Republicans to get this through— there needs to be a jailbreak. You need someone to kind of come out from one of those groups and say, we're supporting it, and then others will follow. That leader has not emerged. It's interesting. Another just a political side point to all this. You mentioned Dean Heller as one of the uh, folks, in, the Republican senators in a Medicaid expansion state who, along with Portman and the rest of this group, is kind of looking closely at the provisions in this bill. Dean Heller just attracted a Democratic challenger this week, Congresswoman Jackie Rosen, uh, who's actually only first elected to the House like seven months ago uh, in in 2016, uh, has said that she's going to run against Heller in 2018. And Heller's the only Republican in a state that Hillary Clinton won 
uh, only Senate Republican in a Clinton state who's up for reelection in 2018. So he's facing all sorts of cross pressures here um, with this vote looming. He had come out at one point and said that he supported Republicans' changes to Medicaid and immediately walked that back. I think Politico was one of the first to report that. And then his press office said, oh, he didn't didn't say that because he's that vulnerable in that state. Um, we did have it recorded. So the, the press that helps. Per- yeah. <laughs> the, the interesting thing to watch, Scott, is for these conservatives in, in a hard place in states that have expanded Medicaid, they are no fans of the program. Republicans for years have not liked the Medicaid program uh, disproportionately. Republicans think it's, it's a welfare program. I think a Kaiser poll said 52% of Republican voters think Medicaid is welfare. That's a major change from Democrats. They've wanted to change it. But what does that mean if you're facing election next year or in a couple years, and now you've got this newly disenfranchised group of voters who are mad that their health care went away? I still think that the moderates are going to be more interesting to watch than the conservatives. I think it's going to be pretty difficult. If you look at the states where these conservative senators are from, Ted Cruz in Texas, Rand Paul in Kentucky, um, Mike Lee in Utah, it's going to be pretty hard for them to go back and explain a vote against this bill, regardless of what's in the bill, um, to their constituents than it is for these moderates ultimately to vote against the bill if they don't think that it goes far enough to protect um, you know, Medicaid recipients or whoever else um, they, that they've been laboring to protect um, by getting it into a, a more moderate position. Well, let, me, let me push on that. Which is so to I say I think they're all going to cave. So the moderates are going to cave? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, the conservatives. Well, it's so in Kentucky, the Affordable Care Act has been pretty successful at expanding coverage. Matt Bevin ran against the Affordable Care Act and won. Right. So That's they, the Republican governor of Kentucky. Yeah. So the disconnect between whether the law is working and what people think is, is real. And I, I think Eliana's point is, is right, that conservatives who have said for years they're going to roll back this law, this, this might be the only chance to do it, to roll back even part of it. That said, the moderates we saw in the House, this, this scenario play out. Moderates said the bill wasn't good enough. Conservatives said it didn't go far enough. The amendments that were made at the last minute were much more favorable to the conservatives in rolling back some ACA protections. The Upton Amendment that that Fred Upton negotiated, he even came out and said, I don't even know if this is enough money to help. And any health policy expert you ask, I think it was like a $5 billion subsidy, like $5 billion over a number of years across the United States, that's a drop in the bucket in healthcare. So if we see something similar play out in the Senate, Moderates may well claim a victory that that optics look good. They got some concession. The change in healthcare might actually be not that significant for expanding coverage. But do you think um, just talking about sort of the logistics of dealing with these different factions? You know, at one point, um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell was saying that you know he wanted to vote on this before the Fourth of July recess, and that was that's what was making these two weeks really crucial. Is that still the expectation, Dan? Is that still what they're going for? It certainly seems that way. The goal is to get this done before the recess for a variety of reasons. One, to just keep the momentum going. And once folks leave town and, and they get home and they might have second thoughts, we saw this in 2009, one reason the Democratic effort dragged on so long, which Democrats keep saying, oh, it took us a lot longer. Well, they wanted to get it done as soon as possible, too. But because of various recesses and, and opposition, they slowed down. There's a lot of fear about the town halls. But based on my own reporting, I'm not sure how much the opposition at town halls actually swayed anybody. Chaffetz, other House Republicans took a lot of chaff when they were home in in March, they still ended up voting for their health bill. And a lot of Republicans that I've talked to, either leaders or or their aides, basically said, we're looking at this as organized opposition 
and not as the will of our constituents. The other thing that I think will be interesting to watch in the next week, and Dan, you could probably speak to more specifics about this, is just like where the industry ultimately stands on this. Because the industry was so crucial in helping the Democrats eventually pass Obamacare. And, you know, you could say that they didn't go far enough on drug prices, for instance, but that's because all of the industry was brought to the table and got compromises. It doesn't seem to me like the Senate Republicans in writing the bill have uh, sort of dealt with or compromised with industry at all yet. And I'm sort of curious, like, what's going to happen over the next week with all these very well-funded and powerful healthcare special interest groups? Nancy, this is my biggest puzzlement, too. And, and you know this as a healthcare business reporter, just how important the lobbies are in shaping legislation and shaping even the regulations that don't get a lot of attention. When the Democrats were negotiating around the ACA, they not only had brought the various lobbies in and then sitting at a table much like us, you know, sitting around and hashing things out. They had No sp- microphones, though. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely no yeah. microphones. D- despite Obama's promise that it was going to be televised on C-SPAN, they, they had their own backroom negotiations, though. The difference was not only were they sitting there talking in 2009, they had spent years getting to that point. Ron Pollack at the Families USA advocacy group had brought pharmaceutical groups and insurers and others to the table. So by the time Democrats were doing their health reform legislation, they were building on all these kind of strange bedfellows alliances. I've done reporting here. Republicans didn't do any of that leading into this year. One reason is Democrats kind of own health care. They have a lot of deep industry expertise. It's a big issue for the party. Republicans don't have that. They don't have the same contacts. And when I talk to folks, including an, an ex-Paul uh, Ryan aide who's leading one of the healthcare kind of outside efforts on the Hill, he said, we're just going to get the bill through and then we'll work on building up alliances with industry. I've just gotten back from a reporting trip in Ohio where I asked the CEO of Cleveland Clinic, arguably the nation's top hospital, one of the most important healthcare institutions in the world. You oppose this bill. Why aren't you trying scorched earth tactics? And what the CEO told me was, we think just going behind the scenes and messaging to our senator, Rob Portman, that's going to be effective enough. Um, and, and, and a plug for Pulse Check, my podcast, I think we'll run that interview fairly soon. But it still mystifies me that these voices aren't doing everything they can because we've seen them do that before. Really quickly, uh, before we wrap up here, um, so a a sense of the timeline. Today is uh, June 22nd. Uh, We've got Fourth of July recess coming up. What gateposts should we be looking for over the next few weeks in terms of getting analysis of this bill, getting votes on this bill, maybe the House and Senate starting to get together and hash out some of the differences between these bills and send something to Trump eventually? We're waiting on a couple key analyses of the bill, the CBO score, which is something that the Republicans said they're going to wait for. Historically, that's been a component in, in the Senate when you are voting on something with budget reconciliation. And then there's also going to be, as, as part of the overall analysis, this birdbath, uh, whether elements of the bill comply with the budget reconciliation process. And there's a chance that some of the provisions, things that change essential health benefits or abortion, some of the Planned Parenthood funding and, and other things in the in the bill may end up getting stripped out, which would make the bill somewhat different in the days and weeks to come. They are still hoping for that vote before July 4th. If that happens, if that moves forward, then maybe the conference would be across July to put the bill together and bring it to Trump. That could also give Republicans sort of a huge out if uh, the Byrd rule and the Senate par- parliamentarian sort of throws certain things out because of the way that they're doing it procedurally. Because then at that point, McConnell can say, well, I tried to put all these things in for conservatives. It didn't work out. Sorry, guys. This is what we have. That's the the show me the body approach that my, really where, where McConnell is saying, look, I'm doing everything I can. 
I move this through, but we have to do more than just talk about healthcare all year and let's move on to the next thing. All right. Well, like we said, the bill just dropped today. So this story is definitely going to develop a lot uh, in the next few hours, the next few days, next few weeks. Uh, One of the best things you can do to keep track of that is to follow our friend Dan Diamond here. He writes the Politico Pulse newsletter. He hosts the Politico Pulse Check podcast. And he was a very informative and helpful guest today. Thank you, Dan. It was it was my pleasure. And I was reading the bill text before jumping on a podcast with you guys. If there's nothing more nerdy than that, <laughs> I, I don't know. But thank you for this. And uh, thank you, Nancy, for being here as usual. Oh, thanks for having me. And Eliana, thank you as always. You're so welcome, Scott. And as always, a big thank you to our listeners. Remember, if you enjoy the Nerdcast, please rate us, subscribe, and write a written review if you have time on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. The more feedback we receive, the higher we rise in the charts, the better we can make Nerdcast for you and other new listeners. And remember, if you have questions for the Nerdcast, please email us at nerdcast at politico.com. That's nerdcast at politico.com. Once again, thank you to our listeners. Thank you to our panel. Thank you to executive producer Bridget Mulcahy and producer Rachel Cusick, Nerdcast illustrator Bill Cookman, and our researcher and Politico web producer Zach Montalaro. We will talk to you again next week. <laughs>